Now I come to the 20th chapter of the book of Genesis, and the 20th chapter actually seems like the fifth leg on a cow. It just seems to be that necessary. And what we have here is something that you feel like you'd like to leave out. Abraham repeats the sin that he committed when he went down in the land of Egypt concerning Sarah by lying about the fact he said, she's my sister. Now, it's the same sordid story. And you wonder again, why is this chapter put in here? Well, it's put in for a very important reason, friends. Abraham and Sarah are going to have to deal with this sin before they can have Isaac, before they can have the blessing. And may I say to you, until you and I are willing to deal with the sin in our life, there's no blessing for us. Now, I'm going to just hit the high points of chapter 20. I'm reading verse 1 now. Abraham journeyed from thence toward the south country and dwelled between Kadesh and Shur and sojourned in Gera. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She's my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gera, sent and took Sarah. Now, what you have here is something that is quite interesting. You think Sarah was beautiful? Well, she's almost 90 years old, and she's beautiful, friends. Not many can qualify in this particular department. That's one thing that I note here. And then Abraham is actually getting pretty far south in the land. He's gone beyond Kadesh Barnea, where the children of Israel came up and wouldn't even enter the land. Now he's gone down to Gera, which I don't think he should have done, but be that as it may, he lies about Sarah again. Now, I want you to hear his confession, because that's the thing that makes this chapter important and reveals the fact that Abraham and Sarah cannot have Isaac until they deal with this sin that is in their lives. And it goes way back. I'm reading verse 11 of chapter 20, and this is a remarkable passage of Scripture, friends. Will you hear it? And Abraham said, And he's talking now to Abimelech, who is greatly disturbed that he would do a thing like this, lie about his wife. And Abraham said, "'Because I thought, surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they will slay me for my wife's sake.'" Now, you see, again, he's not trusting God. He felt like he's moving down into a godless place, And he founds out that Abimelech apparently has a high sense of what is right and wrong. And he puts a tremendous value upon character and that sort of thing, and apparently a man who knew God. Now, will you notice, poor Abraham doesn't look good by the side of Abimelech here. Now, I'm reading on in verse 12. And yet, indeed, she is my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. Now, you see, he lets it all out now. He says, to tell the truth, it is half a lie. She is my half-sister, and she is my wife. Now, verse 13, And it came to pass, when God caused me to wander from my father's house, that I said unto her, This is thy kindness which thou shalt show unto me at every place 
whether we shall come, say of me, he's my brother. Now, when they started out, you see, Abraham didn't have complete trust and confidence in God. And he and Sarah made a pact that anywhere they went, and it looked like Abraham might be killed because of his wife, that Sarah would say, he's my brother. And that would keep Abraham, so Abraham and Sarah thought, from being killed. Now, they made that little agreement, and they used it down in Egypt. And here, they have used it again. Now, that sin must be dealt with before God is going to hear and answer his prayer in sending a son. Isaac will not be born till this will be dealt with. And again, let me repeat, how many Christians today that won't judge sin in their lives, and there's no blessing in their lives. I frankly believe that in many of our fundamental churches today, if we could get the believers there, those that are in places of leadership, if they would confess their sins, now not publicly, but if they would deal with the sins that are in their lives, I believe we could have revival. And I don't believe there'll be any blessing until, friends, this is dealt with. Now, will you listen to Paul over here in 1 Corinthians 11? And this is a pretty important passage. Paul says, "...but let a man examine himself, so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body." For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. And blessing, friends, is being withheld today from the church and from the lives of many believers because we won't deal with the sin in our lives. That's a tremendous lesson a great spiritual lesson here in the 20th chapter of the book of Genesis. Now, next time, we're going to see this long-looked-for event, the birth of Isaac. Now, last time we saw in chapter 20 that Abraham and Sarah had to make confession and put away that sin, which was a habit that went back to an agreement they'd made 25 years before that wherever they went, that Sarah would say that Abraham was her brother and not her husband. And they had two very unfortunate experiences. One was in Egypt and this one in the 20th chapter. But this sin must be dealt with, confessed and put away before Isaac could be born. Now in chapter 21, we have the birth of Isaac. Will you listen? And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did unto Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bare Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. Now, you'll notice that there is a very striking similarity between the birth of Isaac and the birth of Christ. And I believe that the birth of Isaac is given to us for that reason to set mankind before Christ came this great truth. Isaac was born at the set time God had promised. And Paul says in Galatians 4, 4, that in the fullness of time God sent forth his Son, 
born of a woman, born under the law. Now, I'm reading on here in Genesis 21, verse 3. And Abraham called the name of his son that was born unto him, whom Sarah bare to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac, being eight days old, as God had commanded him. And Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born unto him. And Sarah said, God hath made me to laugh, so that all that hear will laugh with me. And she said, Who would have said unto Abraham that Sarah should have given children suck? For I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast the same day that Isaac was weaned. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, which was born unto Abraham, mocking. Wherefore she said unto Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. And the thing was very grievous in Abraham's sight because of his son. Now, I break off the reading there at verse 11, because here there's some very remarkable truths that we need to lay hold of. First of all, the birth of Isaac was a miraculous birth. It was contrary to nature. In the fourth chapter of Romans, Abraham did not count his own body, which was dead, nor yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. Now, out of death, God brings forth life. Now, this is a miraculous birth. And we need to call attention to this, that God did not flash on the world the birth of Christ, the supernatural birth of Christ, as being something new. He began to prepare men for it. And so way back here at the birth of Isaac, you have a miraculous birth. Now, we find also here that God had to deal with both of these, both Sarah and with Abraham. And we saw that in the last chapter. God had to deal with them. They had to recognize now that they could do nothing, that it would be impossible for them. Abraham's a hundred years old, Sarah's ninety years old. In other words, the birth of Isaac must be a birth that they have nothing really to do with. Now, the coming of this little boy Isaac into the home sure did produce a great deal of difficulty. Fact of the matter is, we find that this boy that was the son of Hagar, Ishmael, he was mocking. And we begin now to see the nature and the character of this boy Ishmael. Up to this point, he seems to be a pretty nice boy. But now, with the appearance of this other son in the family, he really shows his true colors. That is an illustration, by the way, of the fact that a believer has two natures. Now, until you're converted, you've got an old nature, and that old nature controls you. Do what you want to do. Or as the popular secular song has it, doing what comes naturally. And what man does that comes naturally is not always the nicest sort of thing. But when you're born again, you receive a new nature. 
And when you receive a new nature, then that's where the trouble always begins. Paul could say in the seventh of Romans that there was this battle going on between the old nature and the new nature. Paul could say, what I would not, I do it. That is, the new nature doesn't want to, but the old nature wants to do it. And the old nature is in control. So that the time comes when you have to make a decision which one you're going to live by. You've got to make a determination, and that is in this matter of yielding to the Lord. You have to either permit the Holy Spirit to move in your life, or else you have to do it by the energy of the flesh. There's no third alternative for the child of God. Now, you have something that's quite interesting here. The son of the bondwoman must be put out. That's exactly what we have here. And the thing was very grievous in Abraham's sight because of his son. After all, Ishmael's his son just as much as Isaac is, as far as the flesh is concerned. And after all, Isaac has just been born. A little bitty baby doesn't know too much about him yet. But this boy Ishmael has been in the home there. And Abraham's attached to him. And the thing's very grievous if he's going to have to send him away. Now, again, I go back to the thing we said at the time, that the thing that Sarah and Abraham did, God did not approve of it. Now, this is a heartbreak to Abraham. He's going to have to send this boy away. It's going to be a heartbreak to him. But God can't accept him. This sin is sin. God just didn't approve of it. And God doesn't intend to approve of it at all. It was a heartbreak to Abraham to send that boy away. And it was to relieve the embarrassment. And poor Sarah just couldn't take it with that boy around mocking her, this older boy. You can't live in both natures. You're either going to have to make a decision. James says a double-minded man's unstable in all of his ways. And that explains the instability, the insecurity among many Christians today. They want to go with the world, and yet they want to go with the Lord. They are spiritual schizophrenias. They are trying to do both, and you can't do that. They have a race among the Greeks years ago. They put two horses together. And a man puts one foot on one horse, one foot on the other, and he starts out. Well, that's a great race, as long as the horses are together. But you and I have got two natures. One's a black horse and the other's a white horse. And when they take out, I tell you, it's great if they go together. But these two horses, you just can't hitch them together. They won't work together. One goes one way and one the other. And when they do... You and I have to make up our mind which way we're going, whether we go in with one horse or with the other, with one nature or the other. And that's where we're told today to yield ourselves. Yield your members as instruments of righteousness. And what the flesh could not do, or the law could not do through the weakness of the flesh, the Spirit of God can now accomplish. The law tried to get a hold on man, but the old nature couldn't measure up to it. But now the Spirit of God can. That is the 
great message that you find here. Then we're going to see something else that took place here, that the child grew and he was weaned, you'll notice. And Abraham then made a great feast because of that. And that was the thing that this little fellow did. He first lived by feeding on his mother's milk. But there came a day when he has to be weaned. And we're told today that newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the Word. You see a little baby in the crib, mama getting a bottle ready for him, and everything in his entire body is working. He's got his feet up in the air. He's got his hands up in the air, and he's yelling at the top of his voice. He wants his bottle. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the Word that you might grow. Now there comes a day when you really want to grow up. And instead of just reading Psalm 23 and John 14, they are very wonderful, but instead of just reading those two chapters, then try going through the Bible. Read the entire Bible. Grow up. Don't be a babe all the time. So that we find this boy Isaac growing along, and he's a real lesson for us today. And that is something that you and I need to recognize. Now, this does begin now to reveal the character of the son of Hagar, Ishmael. This is the nature that you'll see manifested later on in the nation. A nation that is antagonistic, his hand is against his brother. And that's been the picture of him down through the centuries. That has been the picture of him. Now, there is something else for us to note here that is quite remarkable, and that is, in the birth of Isaac, you have, as I've already suggested, actually a comparison or a foreshadowing of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the birth of Isaac is that which sets it before us. And as we've said, God did not spring on mankind all of a sudden the virgin birth. He had had several miraculous births before this, the birth of John the Baptist was, the birth even of Samson was. And now here the birth of Isaac. And there's quite a comparison. And I'd like to call your attention to the comparison between the birth of Isaac and the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, both had been promised. You will recall that when God called this man out of Ur of the Chaldees, 25 years before this, why, God had said, I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give a son to you and Sarah. And 25 years went by, and God made good his promise. Now, God had said to the nation Israel, A virgin shall conceive, bring forth a son. And that day came when he was born in Bethlehem, and it was a fulfillment. A prophecy, you see. Both had been promised. Then there was a long interval between the promise and the fulfillment. Actually, you have about 25 years from the time God promised this. Now, you could even go back as far as David. God had promised there'd come one in David's line. And that's a thousand years before Christ was born. It's quite a remarkable parallel here. And then the third thing is the announcement of the birth to Sarah and Mary seemed incredulous and impossible. 
Now, you'll recall that when these servants of the Lord visited Abraham when they were on the way to Sodom, they announced the birth, and it just seemed impossible. Sarah laughed and said, well, this thing just can't be. It's just beyond belief. It's just something that just seems impossible. And after all, who was the first one to raise a question about the virgin birth? Well, it was Mary herself. When the angel made the announcement, she says, How can these things be, seeing I know not a man? Note that this parallel is quite striking indeed. And then both Isaac and Jesus were named before their birth. You find that both Abraham and Sarah were told, You're going to have a son, and you're going to name him Isaac. And then you find out at the birth of the Lord Jesus that he was named before. That's the thing that the angel said to Joseph. He said, you're going to call his name Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins. So that this is something that we need to note here. Then there is a fifth corollary. Both births occurred at God's appointed time. Now, I've called attention to that here in the second verse. It says, at the set time which God had spoken to them of, Sarah brought forth Isaac. And Paul in Galatians 4, 4 says, In the fullness of time God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. And then the sixth thing is, both births are miraculous, and I've called attention to that. And then the seventh thing, both sons were a particular joy of their father. This is the thing about this man Abraham called the name of his son that was born unto him, whom Sarah bare to him, Isaac. This was the name he gave back at the time when God made the announcement. He laughed because of the sheer joy of it all. And then out of heaven the Father spoke and said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Both were a joy. And then both sons are obedient to the father, even unto death. Now, the next time we're going to get into the 22nd chapter, and when we get in there, we're going to see that this boy, Isaac, was offered up by his father. Now, he's not like the Sunday school card that was given to me as a boy portrayed it. It showed a little bitty fella, and because it says lad... We assume that he's probably eight or nine years old. Well, he just happened to be about 33 years old when this took place. But he was obedient to the Father, even unto death. That was true of Isaac, and that was true of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we find here, this is a marvelous picture of the birth and the life of Christ in the birth of Isaac. But not only that, But the miraculous birth of Isaac is a picture of the resurrection of Christ. Now, we've already turned on another occasion to Romans 4. There Paul said that Abraham, not counting that his own body that was then dead, and then the deadness of Sarah's womb. So out of death came life. That's resurrection, you see. And when Paul emphasizes that, He mentions the fact he was delivered for our offenses. He was raised for our justification. 
And so you have in Isaac here the entire picture, and it's quite a remarkable picture, by the way. Now let's advance on into this chapter here, and you'll find how God graciously deals with Abraham and also with Hagar and her son Ishmael. Verse 12, And God said unto Abraham, Let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad, because of thy bondwoman. In all that Sarah hath said unto thee, hearken unto her voice, for in Isaac shall thy seed be called. God makes it clear to Abraham he's not going to accept Ishmael as the one he'd promised. And also of the son of the bondwoman will I make a nation, because he's thy seed. Now, he'd said, of thy seed, I'll make nations to come from you. So God says that a great nation will come from this boy Ishmael. And Abraham rose up early in the morning, took bread and a bottle of water, and gave it unto Hagar, putting it on her shoulder, and the child, and sent her away, and she departed, wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. And the water was spent in the bottle, and she cast the lad under one of the shrubs. And she went and sat her down over against him a good way off, as it were a bowshot, for she said, Let me not see the death of the child. And she sat over against him, and lift up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the lad. And the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven, said unto her, What aileth thee, Hagar? Fear not, for God hath heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, hold him in thine hand, for I'll make him a great nation. And God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the bottle with water and gave the lad drink. And God was with the lad. He grew and dwelt in the wilderness. He became an archer, and he dwelt in the wilderness of Paran. And his mother took him a wife, out of the land of Egypt. Now, if you read the rest of this, you find out that you drop the line of Ishmael. We're not following it. But they're out there in the desert today. The Arab would qualify. Now we find here in verse 22, it came to pass at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the chief captain of his host, spake unto Abraham, saying, God's with thee in all that thou doest. Now therefore swear unto me, hereby God, that thou wilt not deal falsely with me. In other words, Bimelech wants to make a contract or a treaty with this man Abraham. And Abraham and Abimelech became good friends because of this. Verse 32, Thus they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech rose up, and Phicol, the chief captain of his host, and they returned into the land of the Philistines. And Abraham planted a grove in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. He's calling upon God's name everywhere he goes. And Abraham sojourned in the Philistines' land many days. Now, we're told later on Abraham was always a stranger and a pilgrim in this land that God had promised him. And this is an evidence of it at this point. Now, next time we see the offering of Isaac. And friends, this is one of the highlights of the Bible, this chapter we're coming to. Now, very candidly, I recall the first time that I saw in this chapter these great truths that 
depict the cross of Christ, it was breathtaking. And I'm sure that many of you have had this call to your attention, but again, not only in the birth of Isaac, but now in the sacrifice of Isaac, there is a strange similarity. The very interesting thing is that James makes a statement that I'm sure many of us think contradicts the Bible, that is, the other part of the Bible, when he says in James 2:21, "...was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar?" And then Paul makes the statement in Romans 4, verse 1, "...what shall we say then that Abraham our father hath found as pertaining to the flesh?" For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it is counted to him for righteousness. All right, now, which is right, James or Paul? Well, my answer is both of them are right. First of all, that you need to note that both of them are talking about the same thing. James is talking about the works of faith not the works of the law. And you find that Paul is talking about justification before God. Now, Paul quotes way back in the 15th chapter of Genesis, when Abraham was just getting underway in a walk of faith, and only God knew his heart, and God saw that he believed him. Abraham believed God, and God counted it to him for righteousness. But we saw that he failed many times, and I'm of the opinion that his neighbors might say, well, we don't see that. But the day that he took his son to be offered on the altar, even the hard-hearted Philistine had to say, well, this man has works. And so James says he was justified by works when? Well, when he offered Isaac. But the question's going to rise, did he really offer Isaac upon the altar? And the answer, of course, is he didn't. But he was willing to, and that very act of being willing to is the act that James is talking about that reveals that he had the works of faith. And James is emphasizing the works of faith, which is in the 22nd chapter of Genesis. Paul's talking about faith in his heart, which he had way back in the 15th chapter. Now let's turn to this and begin to read. And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. Now, the word tempt is a little bit too strong here. Actually, the word means test, because James, you know, makes it very clear that God never tempts anyone with evil. God tempts folks in the sense that he tests their faith. And what he's doing here is God did test Abraham. And he's asking him now to do something very strange. Will you listen to this? And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering, upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. You're going to find, by the way, that right after this chapter, that Sarah 
was 127 years old. Chapter 23, verse 1 says that. When she died, and we have the death of Sarah in the next chapter. The very interesting thing is that when you put that down with this chapter, you find out that this boy Isaac wasn't just a little lad. Now, remember that 90 years old was the age of Sarah when he was born, 127 when she died. That means that there was 37 years elapsed here. Now, you wouldn't gather that from reading this. So this boy, little lad, Isaac, as he's called here, why, he actually was in his 30s, probably around 30 or 33 years of age. Now, God says to him, and it reveals something of the heartstrings that it played upon Abraham and also God himself. Take now thy son. And the Lord Jesus, in the position in the Trinity, has taken the position of the Son. Thy Son, thine only Son. And the Lord Jesus is said to be the only begotten Son. Thine only Son, Isaac, whom thou lovest. And the Lord Jesus said, The Father loves me, whom thou lovest. And get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and get to the land of Moriah. And it's the belief of a great many that Moriah, that is the particular part there, is the place where the temple was built, and it is the place that the Lord Jesus was sacrificed, that is, right outside the city walls. I didn't quite get oriented in Jerusalem, but I had a feeling that Golgotha and the temple area were not very far apart, and they belonged to the same ridge, by the way. There's a roadway in times past has been cut through there, and it's been breached, but it's the same ridge, and that is called Moriah. And it's the belief of many that the Lord Jesus died on the same ridge, the same mountain, that Abraham offered Isaac. And now he's to be offered for a burnt offering upon the mountains, which I'll tell thee of. Now, the burnt offering is the offering up till the time of the Mosaic law. And then a sin offering and a trespass offering was given. But here, the burnt offering speaks of the person of Christ and who he is. Now, this is an offer of a human sacrifice. And frankly, it raises this moral question, isn't this wrong? And the answer is, yes, it's morally wrong. But let's look at this for just a moment. I'm of the opinion, had you met Abraham that day on the way with Isaac, you would have said to him, where are you going, Abraham? He'd said to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. And you'd have said, well, don't you know that's wrong? And I think he would have said, yes. I've been taught that it was wrong. I know the heathen nations around here, the Philistines, they offer human sacrifice. But I've been taught otherwise. Well, why are you doing it? Well, he said, all I know is God has commanded it. I don't understand it. But I've been walking with him now for 25 years. He's never failed me, nor has he asked me to do anything that didn't prove to be the best thing. 
And I don't understand this, but I believe that if I go all the way with it, that God will raise him from the dead, because I believe that he'll do that. Now, what we have is that Abraham, he goes out and takes this boy with him. Let me read this, because this is a tremendous picture. And Abraham rose up early in the morning, saddled his ass, took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and clave the wood for the burnt offering, and rose up and went into the place of which God had told him. Now he goes with Isaac, takes him with him, takes the wood for the burnt offering. And now let's follow this. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. Now, it took him three days to get there. But remember, it was on the third day that Abraham received him alive back from the dead, as it were. And that's the way Abraham looked at it. He was raised up to Abraham the third day. And Abraham said unto the young man, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. You see, now the transaction that's going to take place is between the father and the son, between Abraham and Isaac. And actually, God shut man out at the cross and at the time of the darkness at high noon. Why, man was shut out. The night had come when no man could work. And during that last three hours, that cross became an altar on which the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world was offered. And the transaction is between the Father and the Son on that cross. And man is outside. Man is not participating at all. Now, the picture is the same here. It's Abraham and Isaac. Verse 6 I'm reading now. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son. Now, remember, Christ carried his own cross. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. And the fire speaks of judgment, and the knife there, the execution of judgment, sacrifice. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? A great many people say, Well, shortly after this, there was a ram that was caught in the thicket, by his horns, and Abraham got him and offered it. That's right. That's exactly what happened. Let me read that. I drop down to verse 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. Now, the thing is, Abraham said God would provide himself a lamb. But there was no lamb there. It was a ram. And there is a distinction. And the lamb was not provided until 1,900 years later when John the Baptist marked him out and identified him and said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. That's very important to see. And it's, I think, very important for us to note that at this particular place, because Abraham is now ready to offer this boy on the altar. 
this man does not quite understand. And they came to the place which God had told him of, and Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Now, he's not just a little boy that Abraham had to tie up. Actually, he's a grown man, and I believe that he could have overcome Abraham if it came to a physical encounter. But he's doing this in obedience. And the Lord Jesus went to the cross. Not my will, he said, but thine be done. And he's going to the cross to fulfill the will of God. What a picture we have here. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And again, had you and I been there and said, Abraham, are you going through with it? Looks like now God's going to permit you. And he would have said, I sure am. Well, don't you know it's wrong? He said, yes, I've been taught that, and I don't understand it. But I've also learned to obey God. And this is a real crisis in this man's life. Actually, God had brought this man through four very definite crises, a real exercise of his soul, a real strain upon his heart. First of all, he was called to leave all of his relatives in Ur of the Chaldees, just leave the whole group. That was a real test for Abraham. He didn't do it very well at the beginning. But nevertheless, the break came finally. Then there was that test that came of this boy Lot, his nephew. Actually, he loved Lot. He wouldn't have been carrying him around with him if he hadn't. And then the time came they had to separate, and Lot went down to Sodom. Then we found that this boy of his, the son of Hagar, Ishmael, that Abraham just cried out to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. He loved that boy. He hated to be separated from him. And now he comes to this supreme test. This is the fourth great crisis in his life. He's asked now to give up Isaac. Now, he doesn't quite understand all the details about this for the very simple reason God has told him that it's an Isaac, your seed be called. You can depend on that. Now, he believed God would raise him from the dead. But as far as Abraham is concerned, he's willing to go through with it. Now, James can write, don't you see, that Abraham was justified by works when he offered his son. But wait just a minute. Did he offer his son? And Abraham stretched forth his hand, took the knife to slay his son. And he plunged the knife into his son. Is that the way your Bible reads? No, mine doesn't read that way either. And in verse 11 it says, And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God. Now, he knows now. How does he know? By action, by work. Before, it was by faith. Now, God sees your heart. He knows whether you're genuine or not. But your neighbor doesn't know. Your friends don't know. They can only know by works. And that's the reason James could say that faith without works is dead. It has to produce something. Now, God tests Abraham. Now, may I say that I believe that any person that God calls, any person God saves, any person that God uses, is going to be tested. God tested Abraham. And God today tests those that are his own. He tests you and me today. 
And these are tests that are given to us to strengthen our faith and to establish us and make us serviceable for him. That is the important thing that we need to note here. This man, Abraham, is now given the supreme test, and God will not have to ask anything of him after this. Now, he said to Abraham, you're not to do this. And verse 13, And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. So Abraham took this ram, and he offered it for a burnt offering instead of his son. And that's been the substitution all the way from the Garden of Eden down to the cross of Christ. It was this little animal that pointed to his coming. And God would not permit human sacrifice. But when his son came into the world, his son went to the cross and died. And God spared not his own son, but he delivered him up freely for you and for me. And on that cross, it became an altar on which the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world is offered. It's very important to see that, friend. Now, verse 14 says, And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. And so Abraham names this place. And as I said before, a great many people believe that it's where Solomon's temple was built. And Golgotha, the place of a skull, is just right there on that same ridge that the temple was on, that Abraham offered his son. And it was there that the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified. That is a glorious, wonderful thing to see here. And now Abraham calls the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh. How wonderful it is. Here's where God intervened in his behalf. Now will you notice as we move along, and the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time. Now God has a message for him. And he said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing, and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son. Now, just a minute. I have a question to ask. Did Abraham do it? No. He didn't offer his son. Well, God says to him, because you've done this thing. You see, friends, Abraham believed God, and he went far enough to let you and me know, to let God know, God already knew, but to let the created universe know that he was willing to give his son And so God counted it to him, that he had done it. You see that he's justified by faith, but he's also justified before man by his works. He demonstrated that he had that faith. Now will you notice, God says to him, "...because you've done this thing, and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son." Notice how God plays upon that, because God gave his only son that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. Now notice this, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Now that is the fact that today the gospel of Christ 
has gone out pretty much to the world. There are many that have not heard. That's true, even in our own midst. But nevertheless, the blessing has come to all nations, and the only blessing the nations have is through Christ, because thou hast obeyed my voice. And that obedience rested upon his faith, and it always will lead to action. Faith without works is dead. So we leave off at this particular juncture today, my beloved. Pick right up there tomorrow and continue on with Abraham's story. Now we have come through in the 22nd chapter the final crisis in the life of Abraham. Actually, you could not ask Abraham to go any farther than he's gone here. Not only to sacrifice his own son, but to go contrary to all the teachings he'd been given from God. He had been taught that human sacrifice was wrong, and God does condemn it. But the important thing is that now God is making it clear that there will have to be a man to stand in the gap. There will have to be a man that will be capable of becoming the Savior of the race if anyone is to be saved. And so that is a great lesson that's given to us in this. And as we went through the details of Abraham going to the mountain, actually right in the same area where the Lord Jesus himself was crucified, and that Abraham said God would provide himself a lamb, and they found a ram and offered him. But God did provide a lamb 1,900 years later in Christ, and now we find that God stayed his hand. And why didn't God let Abraham go through with it? I think it's self-evident. The fact of the matter is it was wrong, and God stopped Abraham. God spared Abraham's son, but God spared not his own son, but gave him up freely for us all. Now, we find here in verse 17 and 18, and I'll read them again that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore. And thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemy, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. Now, we have here the fact that God says, in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now, what's he talking about here? What seed? Well, if you go to Galatians 3.16, you'll find that Paul interprets what the seed means. And I'm reading now Galatians 3.16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and the seeds, that's plural, as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed which is Christ. You have the Bible's own interpretation of this. Now, Paul says back in the third chapter of Galatians, the eighth verse, he says, "...and the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen, or the Gentiles, through faith, 
preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. All right, when did God preach the gospel to Abraham? When God called upon him to offer his son Isaac upon the altar, that was the time that God preached the gospel to him, because he says here, In thy seed shall all nations be blessed. Well, that seed is Christ. And here we read in verse 18, And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. This is the gospel given to Abraham, if you please. I would like to make this addition here because it's something that is customarily passed by. We assume that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of these Old Testament worthies, they were great men, but they're not as smart as we are. And they don't know as much as we know. I'm of the opinion that Abraham knew a great deal more about the coming of Christ and the gospel that you and I give him credit for. In fact, the Lord Jesus said, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. So he must have known a great deal more than we give them credit for. You see, God had revealed a great deal to Abraham. But the Savior is not yet come. He's not coming, we know today, for 1,900 years. But here on top of Mount Moriah, where Abraham offered Isaac, is a picture of the offering of Christ and even his resurrection. All of it is here because after God called him to do it, it was three days before he even got down there. And God gave him back to Abraham alive on the third day, so that you have the death and resurrection of Christ. And Paul says God preached the gospel to Abraham. That's very important for you to nail down. Now we have, as we come to verse 19, so Abraham returned unto his young men, and they rose up and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. Now, we find here that we have a little insight into the family of Abraham. I'm not going into detail here, but let's just read verse 20 together. It came to pass after these things that it was told Abraham, saying, Behold, Milcah, she hath also borne children unto thy brother Nahor. Now, he left him way back yonder in the land of Haran. And this is just a little sidelight on the family of Abraham. Now, this line will not be followed, but they will cross the line of Abraham a little later, and we'll see that when we get to it. But that is included here, and it's not our purpose to go into this. After all, if you read the rest of this chapter, you have quite an exercise in the pronunciation of names. And it is a worthy subject, but not for our purpose. Now we come to chapter 23. And as we come to chapter 23, why, we see the death of Sarah and Abraham's purchase of a cave in which to bury her, and that's the cave of Machpelah. Now, will you notice as we come to chapter 23, we have first of all here the death of Sarah. 
And Sarah was a hundred and seven and twenty years old. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died in Kerjif Arbor. The name is Hebron in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Now, you have here the death of Sarah. And you'll notice her age is given as a hundred and twenty-seven years old. Now, she was ninety when Isaac was born. Now, we are told that when Sarah died in Kerjif Arbor, it's Hebron. And we'll notice how Abraham even had to buy a cave in which to bury his dead in the very land that God had given him. Now, why didn't he take her somewhere else to bury her? Well, because the hope they have is in that land. That is, the hope of the future. And I'll move on down and read this, because although it's the arrangements for a funeral, and that's not very exciting or very interesting, and certainly becomes a little morbid to some, but it's very important to see here a great truth. Now I'm reading verse 3. And Abraham stood up from before his dead and spake unto the sons of Heth, saying, I am a stranger and a sojourner with you. Give me a possession of a burying place with you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Now notice Abraham calls himself a stranger and a sojourner, even in the promised land that God had promised to give him. And verse 5, And the children of Heth answered Abraham, saying unto him, Hear us, my Lord, thou art a mighty prince among us. In the choice of our sepulchres, bury thy dead. None of us shall withhold from thee his sepulchre, but that thou mayest bury thy dead. Now, this is a very generous offer of the children of Heth that lived in this land. They said to Abraham, you just pick your burying spot in any of our sepulchers, and that's it. We'd be delighted to have you. You see, Abraham had made a tremendous impression. He's a mighty prince. This man, influence counted for something. Verse 7, And Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of the land, even to the children of Heth. And he communed with them, saying, if it be your mind that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me to Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he hath, which is in the end of his field, for as much money as it is worth, he shall give it me for a possession of a burying place among you. Now, the cave of Machpelah was the place Abraham wanted. But he wanted to buy it. He wanted nothing given to him. In other words, until God gave him that land, he'll buy what he needed and what he wanted. And now he actually buys a burying place. Now, again, I ask the question, why didn't he take Sarah somewhere else and bury her? Well, he buried her there because it's the land and the hope of the future is there. Now, you are going to find, as you go through the Bible, 
that there are two great hopes and two great purposes God has. He has an earthly purpose, and he has a heavenly purpose. Now, he has an earthly purpose, that is, with this earth on which you and I live, it's going into eternity. Now, it's going to be traded in on a new model. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth, but there's going to be an earth, and it's going to be inhabited throughout eternity. Now, that's the promise that God gave to Abraham and those after him. You see this earth on which you and I live, God's not going to put it in the garbage can. It's not going to be put out in one of these lots where you have all these wrecked cars. God's not going to get rid of it. He intends to trade it in on a new model, and the new heavens, the new earth, will go into eternity, and there will be people to inhabit it. Now, that was the hope of Abraham. Abraham wanted to be buried in that land so that when the resurrection came, he and Sarah would be raised in that land. And he never knew how many was coming after him, but they're literally going to be millions going to be raised from the dead. And that's their hope. It's an earthly hope, and it'll be realized. Now, when our Lord, yonder in the upper room, said to these disciples who were schooled in the Old Testament, and they had the Old Testament hope, when he said to them, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many abiding places. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Now, that is the new Jerusalem. That is something that he's preparing today. And that's the place where the church is going. That will be the eternal abode of the church. Now, that was brand new to these disciples, and I'm afraid it's brand new to a great many Christians today. God never told Abraham he's going to take him away from this earth to heaven. He kept telling him, I'm going to give you this land. Now, Abraham believed God, and that's the reason now that he wants to be buried, wants Sarah buried in that land, and it's a place for him to bury his dead. He intends to be buried there, and he is buried there. Now, that's down at Hebron. We made a trip down there, and over that spot today, they have a mosque. It's a Mohammedan mosque. Franklin, in that entire land, when I was there, I never felt uncomfortable are just a little afraid, except at Hebron. We'd been warned to be very careful in Hebron that there was a great deal of antagonism to the tourists and a great deal of antagonism to practically everyone. And, of course, they let you in the mosque because it meant tourist dollars. And we went in and looked down through a little hole in the floor down into the cave and whether Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are buried there, Abraham and Sarah are supposed to be there, Isaac and Rebekah are supposed to be there, and Jacob is supposed to be there. Rachel is buried on up at Bethlehem. Now, these men all buried in that land. Why? They've got a hope of being raised from the dead in that land. That's their hope someday. They have an earthly hope. Now, our hope is a heavenly hope, 
And I hope that that is made clear to you today, and you can see the importance of why Abraham's dwelling on this so much here at this particular time. And now he has this deal to buy the cave. Now notice the transaction. And Ephron dwelt among the children of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the audience of the children of Heth, even of all that went in at the gate of his city, saying, Nay, my Lord, hear me, the field give I thee, and the cave that is therein I give it thee. In the presence of the sons of my people give I it thee, bury thy dead. Now, notice Abraham and the generosity of these people and of this man Ephron in particular. Abraham bowed down himself before the people of the land. They certainly were polite in that day. We get the impression these were cavemen that carried clubs and clubbed each other. May I say to you, if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the Old Testament saints, in fact, the ones that are mentioned in this chapter, if they were in Los Angeles today and could go back and report to their folk, I think they'd say, do you know that the offspring are a bunch of cavemen? They're highly uncivilized, they're rude and they're crude, and they're a disgrace. I think they would say that of us today. But we have the advantage we can talk about them. But the interesting thing is, notice how polite they are. Abraham bowed down himself before the people of the land. Now, verse 13, And he spake unto Ephron in the audience of the people of the land, saying, But if thou wilt give it, I pray thee, hear me, I will give thee money for the field. Take it of me, and I will bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham, saying unto him, My Lord, hearken unto me, the land's worth four hundred shekels of silver. What's that betwixt me and thee? Bury therefore thy dead. And Abraham hearkened unto Ephron, and Abraham weighed to Ephron the silver, which he had named in the audience of the sons of Heth, four hundred shekels of silver, current money with the merchant, that is, the legal tender of that day. Now, the field of Ephron, which was Machpelah, which was before Mamre, the field and the cave, which was therein, and all the trees that were in the field, that were in all the borders round about, were made sure unto Abraham for a possession in the presence of the children of Heth before all that went in at the gate of his city. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, the same as Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And the field and the cave that is therein were made sure unto Abraham for a possession of a burying place by the sons of Heth. And apparently that place today, a mosque built over it, is the mosque there at Hebron. And by the way, it's considered either the second or the third most important mosque of the world of Islam. They have many beautiful mosques, Cairo and in other places. Some of them that I've seen are absolutely beautiful. 
But the ones that are the most important, of course, would be Mecca first. And I'm not sure whether this one at Hebron or the one in Jerusalem is considered number two. But then the other one would be number three. So you can see how important this is, because they all go back to Abraham. Now, that reveals the importance of this chapter. And it's going to become important because Isaac's going to be buried here, and Jacob will die way down in Egypt, and he wants to be buried here. And he is buried there, by the way.